But to motivate you to, to sit through it a little bit extra time, I'm going to tell you ahead of time that we're going to talk about sex and divorce. So hopefully that will keep your attention. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I've had a number of people who have come to me and have said, my marriage is really rotten. We fight all the time. We're not happy. I know as a Christian I can't initiate divorce, but can't we just separate for a while, get apart for a couple of months, and get away from all of the hurt and the conflict? My answer to that question is always no. And part of the reason why is spelled out in this chapter, in the first part of this chapter in 1 Corinthians 7. In verses 1 through 9, Paul talks about sex and the sexual responsibilities within marriage. In verses 10 to 16, he speaks about divorce. And within this section, there's a part that people usually use to justify a temporary separation. When we get to it, I think you'll see that it really doesn't mean that. Now, some people are understandably squeamish about talking about sex in, in a meeting in public, particularly in a, in a congregation, a church. We must keep in mind that Paul wrote this letter to be read publicly in the church and discussed, and therefore it was, it was it's God's desire that, though we hopefully I'll uh, be seemly about the approach but uh, and what I say, but it's God's desire that we do address these issues openly. And therefore, he's written openly about these to us. Paul begins, Now concerning the things about which you wrote. Up to this point in the book, he has been discussing problems which he has found out about in the church. Now he turns uh, in a different direction and answers questions that they had written him about. It's important to keep that in mind in looking at this first section in particular because many people have criticized Paul and said that he has a very low view of marriage and sees marriage as only being good as providing a sexual outlet. Paul is not giving a full-blown picture of marriage here. He's simply responding to the questions that they have asked. In response to the first one, he says that it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Some suggest that he's saying that all physical contact should be avoided. Christian man should not put his arm around a woman or dance with or shake hands or pat in the back or anything. Because he says good not to touch a woman. And yet Paul's point is, is really different than that. Though we should be careful in our physical contact with the opposite sex. Uh, he is really speaking of something different. In Proverbs chapter 6, verse 29, we read, So is the one who goes in to his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her will not go unpunished. And the phrase touching your neighbor's wife is parallel to the phrase going in to her. In other words, having sexual intercourse. And this is just a Hebrew way of, of saying having sexual relations with somebody, touching them touching them in a sexual way. And Paul is saying in verse 1, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with with a woman. In other words, it's good not to be married. 
She's already said that in the last chapter that sex is reserved for marriage and only, in that, only within that relationship does it have a place. It was the teaching of Orthodox Jews at the time that celibacy, in other words, being single, was, was wrong and should be avoided. And all true followers of God should get married. And apparently the Corinthians had written and said, is it necessary for us to get married? Must we all get married? And Paul writes back and says, no, it's good not to get married. To not be married is a good thing. But he continues, it's good to be married also. It's good to be single. And in the section we'll look at next week, he tells why. So we might have more freedom in serving the Lord. But, verse 2, because of immoralities, let each man have his own wife and each let each woman have her own husband. Though singleness is good, the usual pattern is for each of us to be married so that we can have uh, a proper sexual outlet and hopefully avoid falling into sexual immorality. Verses 3 and 4, he describes the responsibilities that each of us has within marriage to our partner. Let the husband fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. Notice that he says that the sexual responsibilities are a duty that we owe. It's not a privilege that we bestow upon the other person, or a favor that we give if we're treated rightly. Sex within marriage should never be treated as a reward or punishment. Withdrawal as a punishment. We should never approach it. Well, honey, if you will buy me this little trinket, then I'll uh, sleep with you tonight. Nor the punishment that's very frequent. Well, after the way you've treated me, don't think I'm going to let you get near me tonight. That kind of attitude, though common and natural, has no place in a Christian marriage. Because Paul says that, that our sexual response to our partner is a duty. It's not a privilege that we bestow on the other when we feel like it. But it's a duty that we owe. Sacred obligation. In verse 4 he says, The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. In other words, you are not to determine your spouse's needs and how they are to be fulfilled. Your spouse determines his or her own needs, and then you should seek to fulfill those. Counseled one couple a number of years ago, and the uh, wife was very frustrated in the relationship. And one of the things she complained about was their sexual relationship. She said, he just won't give to me as he ought. He stays up and watches TV at night and won't come to bed with me. He won't give me the tenderness and affection that I want. And his response was, well, I love her in my way. Why I'm right now putting on a new roof in our house out there after work every day and on weekends, hammering away, laboring hard, a labor of love for her to make the home a nice and pleasant place for her. 
Then when I finish that, I'm going to put up a new fence and do this yard work and this, that, and the other. That's totally unsatisfying. Paul says, you don't have authority over your own body to decide, well, this is the way I want to give. But rather, the way you give should be dictated by the needs of your spouse. It's most common in marriages that the husband and wife have different needs, different desires. The most common arrangement is for the wife to have needs that are more uh, emotional. She desires more tenderness and affection. And for her to, for the husband to read and say, well, I need to give to my wife, so we just need to step up frequency, is not satisfactory. Because to give to her means to give in the way she wants. More tenderness, more affection, to be unrushed in the, in the lovemaking, have more time, more verbal communication. And a godly husband will find out what his wife wants and give in that way. The godly wife will find out what the husband wants, what he needs, and desire to meet his needs. For her, she might feel that, well, all I really want tonight is just some tenderness, some closeness. And that's, therefore, that's all I want to give. And she'll be tempted to be selfish and give to him in a way that she really wants. Or she might feel, you know, well, once a year, once a month, something like that is frequently, frequent enough for me. Well, how she gives is dictated by his needs, not by hers. Paul goes on, verse 5 says, Stop depriving one another. The word is translated depriving literally means stealing. Because it's an obligation that you have to give to your spouse. To refrain from giving it is really stealing. It's robbing what is rightfully your spouse's. Therefore, he says, stop depriving. Give what you owe. Now we note that Paul doesn't say, let the husband make sure that his wife fulfills her duty to him. And likewise, the wife makes sure that her husband shapes up, fulfills his duty to her. Paul's not talking here about rights, things that we should each demand. Rather, he's talking about responsibilities, what we should each seek to give. Now, this raises a problem because sexuality is a very deeply emotional thing. It's not simply a physical act, but involves our whole psyche, our whole being. And how do you give to somebody when you don't really feel like it? And that's a problem that many face. Well, let me read you from Proverbs chapter 5. Many of you studied this last week in Sunday school. Just refresh your memory. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 19. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breasts satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. The word translated be exhilarated means literally be intoxicated. Be drunk with your enjoyment over this love relationship. And the important thing for us to note here is that this is commanded. We often feel that we don't have any control over our feelings. They kind of just come and go, and I can't help it how I feel. And yet the fact that we're commanded there to be exhilarated, intoxicated, and 
a love relationship implies that we have a lot more control than we realize, a lot more than we often think. The control is really, as as i found, so much of it is in the mind, how you think. If you let thoughts of bitterness come in your mind and resentment, all these things that he or she did to me that I don't like today, and you feel tense and irritable, you're not going to feel loving, not going to feel like giving yourself to your spouse after you've built up and thought about all of these these uh, things that that irritate you. Or if you start feeling thinking bad thoughts about that person or about your last experience together, or let yourself dwell upon things which are distracting, a business deal that's pending or or uh, concern over what you're going to make for dinner the next night or uh, or whatever else. As you let yourself think on these things, it distracts you. And the way, the best way I found to control my emotions is to control my thoughts, to give input to the mind. And as the bad thoughts creep up, treat them as temptations. Tempted to feel irritable, tempted to feel blah towards this person. And start dealing with them as temptations. And I say to myself, well, that's not right. It's selfish to feel this way. It's unloving to be so concerned about myself and how I feel. As you start thinking more about your spouse and how he or she feels and about what needs he or she has, and you find that your desires to give will increase. As you make the matter, make it a matter of prayer, and don't just pray, oh God, I feel so trapped and I don't want to do this and just help me not to feel this way. Because oftentimes that feeds the feelings. But instead pray about your partner. Lord, I want to love my wife or my husband. Help me to see his or her needs and think of ways I can give and plan and make the, the uh, adequate preparations for that. And that really will have an effect upon your feelings. So we have sexual responsibilities within marriage, but Paul does in verse 5 indicate that there are times in which you won't be fulfilling those, and that's legitimate. He says there is an exception. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Now notice that he does not say Stop depriving one another, except when you don't feel like it, when the other has not treated you nicely, when you have lost your interest in sex, when you just feel out of the mood. He doesn't list those things as legitimate exceptions. Rather, he says, stop depriving one another, except when it's by mutual agreement, when it's for a short time, and when the absence is for the purpose of prayer. Because first of all, it's by mutual agreement. It's not you deciding and then forcing it on the other person. But you decide mutually. We want to refrain from sexual involvement for a while. And he says it's, there's a time limit on it. It's for a time. And the implication, of course, is a short time. He doesn't tell us how long 
that is to be, whether it's three hours or three days or three weeks or three months, we don't really know. We have to work that out ourselves. I did hear about a Christian couple. Uh, The wife was a very intelligent woman, wanted to pursue her education and decided to leave her husband for the summer and go off to Europe to go to a university there. Now, for myself, I can't see how that is for a short time. I think that would just bring about problems. Paul says the purpose of the separation also is that you may devote yourselves to prayer. And this is where the passage most squarely hits the problem of of getting a separation to get out of the hassles of marriage. A person came to me not too long ago and said, well, can't we just separate for a while? We read over this passage and they said, well, when we go, can't I just pray a lot? I point out to this person, that's not the reason you're leaving. You want to leave. Paul says the separation is for the purpose of prayer. That's not just a secondary thing tacked on at the end to kind of make it okay. I think the, the main reason it's wrong to separate within marriage is that you have obligations to fulfill to that person. And by separating, you're just opening yourself up for problems, which is what Paul goes on and says exactly. He says, and come back together again after you've been apart for your time of prayer, spiritual growth. Come back together again, lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. He's recognizing that the sexual drive, the sexual need is very strong in people. And therefore, he says, we need to beware, not play with fire. We need to watch out for our schedules, not be so busy that we never really have time for this part of our relationship. We need to watch out about business trips and things that take us away and make us be apart. And be careful and not let them become too frequent or too long because they will just increase temptation. The temptation for some is a physical thing. It's a strongly, it's a strong physical drive. For others, the temptation is more of an emotional thing. I want somebody who will love me, who will give to me and reach out to me. And here's a person that cares more for me than my husband does or my wife does. Somebody who gives me a little attention and respect so they get involved. Paul is saying that within marriage, you should be, there should be a a magnetism sexually. You should draw one another to to, uh, yourselves. Meet the sexual needs in marriage. Recognize that they're great. And don't play with fire by denying or continually putting off. Rather, fulfill the obligations that you have. Paul says in verse 6, I say this by way of concession, not of command. And by this, he doesn't mean the sexual uh, responsibilities within marriage, but he's referring back to verse 2, where he said, let each man have his own wife and each woman her own husband. I say this, in other words, that marriage is legitimate by way of concession, not of command. In other words, you don't have to get married. It's not a command. It's a concession. In verse 7 he says, but really I wish that all men were, as, were even as I myself, were single. As he continues on in the chapter, he does point out 
later on, that in singleness you do have a special opportunity to serve God, a special freedom that you don't have while you're married. A freedom to travel, a freedom to uh, stay up late hours working with people, a freedom from from uh, certain concerns and cares of family life. But he says, however, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner, another in that. So he says your makeup in terms of whether or not you get married is a gift from God. If you get married, don't feel it's bad. Don't feel that you are just uh, taking second best and that you are really unspiritual, not spiritual enough to devote yourself fully to God. Each person has his own gift, he says. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them to remain even as I am, single. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. In other words, burn with passion. If you're single and you're always worried about wanting to be married, if you're always burning with sexual passion and, and having temptation after temptation, then your singleness is not doing you any good in your service for God. She says, if that's the case, get married. It's no harm. It's no bad that you're doing. And then in verses 10 to 16, he turns to the subject of divorce. Notice the difference between verses 10 and 12. Verse 10, he says, But to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord. Verse 12, he says, But to the rest I, I say, not the Lord. First, he says, to the married. Second, to the rest. But as we read the rest of these verses in 13 to 16, it's evident that the rest are also married. But the difference is that in verses 10 and 11, he's talking about to married Christians. In 12 to 16, he's talking about marriages in which one person's a Christian, the other person's not. Now, some suggest that he's saying in verse 10 that this is divine, divinely inspired instruction, but verse 12, this is just my own opinion. I don't have any word from God. I think it's better to take this as understand it that in verse 10 he's saying this is the Lord's instruction this is the instruction that Christ gave while on earth concerning the subject of divorce but while he was on the earth he didn't didn't really speak directly to the issue of a mixed marriage which one's a Christian one's not a Christian therefore in verse 12 he says this is new a new teaching concerning this matter it's just as inspired because I'm a, an apostle and speak authoritatively, but it's not the, re, the repetition of something Christ gave on earth. Now, some justify uh, separation by verse 11, which says, but if she does leave, they say this indicates that it's legitimate at times for a man and a woman to leave one another. And Paul is saying that this might may be a real possibility. There are three problems with that interpretation. One is that Paul says in verse 10, let her not leave. She's not supposed to do it. In verse 11, when he says, if she does, he's simply saying, if she, if she sins by leaving, let her not compound her sin by going off and, and remarrying. The second problem is that the word for leave here, korizo, was a word normally used in the Greek of the first century to mean divorce. 
Thirdly, he says, if she leaves, let her remain unmarried. Well, if she's just separated from her husband, she's not unmarried, so she can't remain unmarried. She's still married to him. So he says, don't divorce. But if you do, don't compound your sin by marrying again. Or else, your other option is to seek to be reconciled, put the marriage back together. This prohibition against divorce is really the cement that holds many marriages together. If you know that you have no way out, then you're going to go through with it. You're going to work on the problems. You're going to deal with them. But if you kind of go, if you go into marriage with the thought that, well, anytime it gets too tough, the door in the back is always open. I can sneak out. Or anytime somebody better comes along, has a little more pizzazz to them, well, I'll grab that person and get a better spouse. If you ever have that kind of a feeling, then you really don't have to work on the problems. You have a whole different mentality. If you are, uh, if a woman is going into childbirth and she decides she wants to have unmedicated childbirth, not have anesthesia, and she happens to uh, be in delivering in a home, there's no anesthesia around, then she knows she's got to tough it out no matter what happens, no matter how hard the pain. But if she's in a hospital, the doctors and nurses keep coming and saying, well, we've got some right here. If it ever gets too too hard, just let us know, and here we are, and we'll give it to you. Then she doesn't have quite the incentive, because she always thinks, well, you know, if it starts to hurt too much, I can always get out of it. That's the same type of difference in marriage. If you, if you go into it thinking, well, I'll give it a good try, but if it doesn't really work out satisfactorily, I'll get out of it. Then you don't really deal with the problems. You don't gut it up when times are tough and sit down and work on them. But if you realize that there's no option for you but to work on them, you take them more seriously and you turn to the Lord and say, God, We're going to make this marriage work by your power. Help us to do it. We're going to sit down and work out our problems and learn to serve and love one another. So Paul says, don't get divorced. He says if a person does, if this woman does, let her remain unmarried. The reason is because Jesus said, Matthew 19.9, if a man divorces his wife except for the cause of immorality and and marry another, then he commits adultery. Christ said that the second marriage is adultery because the first marriage, though, le- though divorced in the eyes of the state, has not been terminated in the eyes of God. The people have legally been divorced, but in God's eyes they're still married. And therefore, to enter into a relationship with another woman, this man is committing committing adultery. This woman here is to remain unmarried because she's, in God's eyes, really still married to her husband. What she should really seek is to be reconciled. Now, some say, well, but God forgives us and he cleanses us of the past and he wants us to be happy Therefore, of course, he'd want me to be remarried. But Paul says here clearly, let her remain unmarried 
or be reconciled. Now, Christ did give an exception. He said if the divorce has taken place on the grounds of adultery, sexual immorality, then it is legitimate to be divorced and to be remarried. But if it's just that people are, are incompatible, they fight, they don't get along, he says there's no divorce. And if there's divorce, there's no remarriage because in God's eyes they're still married. They need to be reconciled and work out the problems. Verse 12, but to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, let him not send her away. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to, to live with her, let her not send her husband away. In other words, if you're married to a non-Christian, and the non-Christian is willing to stay in the marriage, then don't divorce that person. I've heard people say, well, you know, we were both non-Christians when we got married. I became a Christian. She didn't, or he didn't. Since then, we've just drawn farther, grown farther and farther apart. And I just don't feel this marriage is of the Lord. I feel the best thing we could do is to break it off. I could get married to a Christian person. Then we could really serve the Lord together. And I'm sure that's what God wants. Because he wants us to be happy. And we just don't get along. This marriage is not really of the Lord. We got married before we're Christians, and God forgives you your past. So we need to start over. But Paul says here directly, don't do that. If you're married to a non-Christian, whether you married in disobedience by deliberately marrying somebody who wasn't a Christian, or whether you got married then one of you became a Christian, whatever the case, don't divorce. If this person is willing to, to stay married to you, then stay married. In verse 14, he addresses a, a reason why they might want to, want to seek a divorce. Verse 14 starts out with the word for. And the word for gives a reason or explanation for what, is, what has gone previously. Paul says, For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean but now they are holy. The problem some were bringing up, apparently, is, well, gee, I think that their children are unclean. In other words, this marriage is not really legitimate in God's eyes, and these children are illegitimate children. Maybe we should follow the example of the Israelites in Nehemiah's day. They disobeyed God and married non-Christians, married pagan people, uh, unbelievers, then they divorce them when they faced up to their sin. Put them away. Maybe that's what God wants us to do, me to do. To divorce this person, the marriage is not really holy in God's side, it's not really legitimate, and the children are illegitimate as a result. Well, Paul says, no, the, the unbelieving partner is sanctified. Not in the sense of being saved, but in the sense of the, in the sense that the marriage is legitimate in God's eyes. The children are holy. They're not illegitimate in any way. So stay together. Yet, he says in verse 15, if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. Now, some suggest that Paul is talking about desertion here and saying if the unbelieving partner deserts you, then at that point you're free to, to legally go ahead and get a divorce and remarry. But Paul's not talking about desertion. 
The word leave here is the same word used back in verses 10 and 11 of divorce. He's saying here, if the unbelieving partner wants a divorce, presses for it, well, go ahead. Let him do so. Let him divorce you. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases. In other words, the Christian is not under bondage to to make the marriage stay together. Now, some Christians twist this a little bit. They read this and they say, aha. They go and say, well, honey, we really don't get along very well. And you know, as a Christian, I couldn't divorce you. But if you would divorce me, I would be very willing to go along with it. But that's not at all what Paul is saying here. He's not saying you as a Christian initiate divorce and try to force your unbelieving spouse to divorce you or be so cranky and irritable and hard to live with that that he wants to. Rather, the godly response is to love and be gracious to that person, try to make the marriage work. But if the unbelieving partner insists on a divorce, then you're free, he says. You're free to let the person go. You're not under bondage in such cases because God has called us to peace, not to continual fighting, not to uh, kick and scream and bite trying to, to keep the divorce from happening. Now some take this phrase, the sister, brother or sister is not under bondage, to mean that the marriage bond is no longer uh, intact and therefore the person is free to divorce and remarry. For myself, I think that Christ gave us the only legitimate grounds for divorce and remarriage, which is adultery. But here he's saying, Paul is saying, you're not under bondage to keep the marriage together. That's what the context is talking about. So you can go ahead and get a divorce. Uh, At that point, I don't think the person is free to remarry because the marriage is still valid in God's eyes until the other one starts living with somebody or marries them or enters into uh, an affair with them. In verse 16, he says why God allows this this kind of divorce to happen. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Some might feel, I've got to keep this marriage together because I'm the only link between this person and God. If I stay together, I can witness and witness and and hopefully save this person. Paul says, you don't know that. How do you know if you can ever save them? God has called us to peace. If that person is insisting on a divorce, go ahead and give it to them. As a matter of fact, your refusal and your continued fighting with them might drive them further away from God and make them resentful. But if you're gracious and submit to that request, then that might bring the person to God or make him more open. Well, we haven't been able to handle all of the questions about divorce and remarriage here, and I do have a tape that's available from the tape library or the uh, check it out of the office if you want to pursue these questions further. Let's all bow briefly and consider the truths of this passage for our own lives.